This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. At the end of a week when a mob of insurrectionists stormed the U.S. Capitol building to disrupt the certification of a free and fair presidential election, a moment of reflection. Last year, when it became clear that 2020 would be like no other, a group of University of Washington professors launched a program for freshmen called 2020, The Course. This unique course of interdisciplinary study included classes in history, sociology, education, law, and environmental science. The fact that the program took place during a life-changing global pandemic, a concurrent economic upheaval, and a simmering, sometimes erupting reckoning over racial injustice and police violence was front and center. Challenges of distance and disconnection had to be faced creatively. As a culmination, participants were asked to document their experiences of 2020 to contribute to a time capsule. In this episode of Speakers Forum, we hear about what it was like to guide students through this process from some of the professors who led the course. We also hear from some of the participants about their contributions to the capsule. This conversation, presented by the University of Washington and the UW Alumni Association, took place on December 30th. Vice Provost and Dean of Undergraduate Academic Affairs Ed Taylor moderated the discussion. He was joined by Professors Karam Dana, Hilary Godwin, Sharon Lang, Kate Starbird, and Joseph James. There's a link to the video of this event on our website, KUOW.org slash speakers. Professor Ed Taylor opened the event. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. In the early part of March, we at the University of Washington, and really all of you in, in the community, had truly come to terms with the impact of, of this pandemic. We knew that our lives were going to be changed because of this, of this moment. In May, much of the world bore witness to the, to the killing of George Floyd. And, and all who witnessed that moment became connected in some way, whether we were witting or unwitting, we became connected. We became part of that story of, of race in America. The idea of, of a course and a time capsule, I, I must say, was, was not my idea. It's, it's an idea that was born of the work of, of people at our university um, who, who come to campus every, every day and, and, and do their work. It, it's our vocation. It's what we do at a, at a public university. We teach, we, we learn, we engage, and we engage with our public. So it wasn't my idea, but I think it's a good idea. 
But this moment did present a renewed opportunity for us to bridge and, and appeal to the best instincts of our community and to navigate through the storms that we're experiencing and to do so together, to live up to our mission in this moment. And I believe we're doing that. There are some things that stood out to me in March that I want to mention that were part of the inspiration for the course. One was the revelation of the connectedness between all of us. Every person who stepped foot on campus and every person who stepped foot in your home has always been significant, but, but became revealed in some new way. Everyone who turned a knob and walked into a classroom, walked into that door in a building, became significant. Every, every move they made, everything that they carried became significant. Just think about this. A student who, who boarded a bus in South Seattle and took that bus to, to downtown Seattle and made their way to the university district became significant and connected the bus driver to, to our campus. And if that student stopped and, and got a cup of coffee and paused to talk to the barista for a while and maybe talk to a stranger, brought that person into connection. And if that student made their way into a classroom, they were indelibly connected to the faculty member and the custodian, the man or woman who cleans that, that classroom, that every move became significant. And if that student went home, that connected all of us, the barista, the, the bus driver, the faculty member, and those who clean our spaces, we were all connected in that moment. We were experiencing something that my colleague Sharon Parks calls the new commons, that we are all part of the commons, we are all connected. The second thing that inspired the course and inspired those of us who thought about this this moment was the renewal that purpose and vocation matters, that research universities engage in, in great endeavors and, and they engage in great advances. And in fact, humanity's greatest advances and research universities' greatest advantage, advantage, advances are not in what we discover, not just in, in the act of discovery, but how those discoveries are applied to reduce inequity, to reduce suffering, to enhance understanding and improve the conditions of, of lives, of all of our lives, the lives of of what Sly Stone calls everyday people, that our work, that our discoveries, our revelations have to have impact and they have to have meaning to people, to everyday people, to all of us. It's about saving lives. It's about all of us being well. The third thing that I think inspired us, me, is the devotion to the realization that talking across disciplines matters that at the university we have disciplines, but, but now it's important that the School of Business talk to the School of Public Health and the School of Public Health talk to the School of Nursing and that nurses talk to historians and that historians talk to public policy people that we're all in conversation together. Disciplines matter, but this is a moment that calls us to talk across disciplines and we are. A fourth thing was back in March, the realization that that as 2020 began and we encountered so many, so many difficulties, the realization that not everybody would move through 2020 and move into 2021 with us, that we would lose some people in this, that important lives would, would be lost. Some names that we know, Justice Ginsburg, Honorable John, John Lewis, but countless names, they may be your mothers, they may be your fathers, they, they may be your sons and daughters, but some will not move into 2021 with us. And that if, in the making of a course that we can honor the lives of those who may not travel into 2021 with us, 
that we should carry their memories and, and do so with integrity. And the final thing I think that inspired this course was the realization that we would be online during the course of the year with our students. And that our students, albeit virtual, deserve the very best that our university has to offer. That we can bring good educators and community members and alumni into the homes of students, knowing full well that students would be learning in their apartments, in their homes, some oddly enough in their, in their cars, in their living rooms, in their kitchens, and faculty would be teaching from their kitchens, from their homes, from their bedrooms, from their apartments. And in some ways, we've created a community and a way to sit down and talk to each other. Online may not be perfect, but it's an opportunity for us to sit together. And if a student needed to, to pause every now and then and take in some detail and take in the voice of a faculty member with some great care. So having said that, let us begin our conversation with, with colleagues that said yes to this, to this opportunity and said yes to, to teaching. And I'd like to introduce you to, to a few of the faculty who, um, who said yes. Uh, I have Karim Dana, Associate Professor, School of Interdis Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at University of Washington, Bothell. Thank you, Karim. Hilary Godwin, the Dean of School of Public Health at the University of Washington, Seattle, and, and Sharon Lang, Assistant Professor, School of Nursing and Healthcare Leadership at University of Washington, Tacoma, and Kate Starbird, Associate Professor in the Department of Human Center Design and Engineering and Principal Investigator, UW Center for the Informed Public. So thank you all for saying, for saying yes to this, and thank you all for being the scholars and practitioners that you, that you are and the leaders that you are. I want to start with the question. So, so this course got put together late, late summer, and I only gave you really a few weeks to contribute to, to the course. I sent you an email and asked if you'd participate, and you all said yes. So why in the world, is my first question, would you say yes to participating in a course when your calendar was already full? and you had a month to prepare and begin and enter into this conversation from your homes. Why did you say yes to this? Hillary, let's start with you. Sure. Um, so the, the first answer is um, just out of gratitude to you, Ed, for um, your vision and, and, and also the hard work that you put into pulling this together. Um, it certainly is an honor to be asked. Um, the other reason, um, so as Ed mentioned, I'm Dean of the School of Public Health, and um, by the summertime, it was really clear that we were having some challenges around messaging related to COVID and public health uh, measures. And so I really saw it as an opportunity to be able to speak to students across campus um, and to provide them with some good evidence-based information about the pandemic um, so that we could all work together to create a healthier environment on campus. So thanks, Ed. Carm, Sharon. Well, I, if, if I may, I'll, I'll go ahead. I think, um, as you mentioned in the introduction and uh, kind of echoing what Hillary had mentioned, um, is to think about the institution as an, uh, you know, kind of uh, contributing to kind of a meaningful and positive impact in the community. And I think the reason why I accepted this invitation, although we have, uh, as you imagine, we receive a lot of invitations to do something like this, uh, but in a sense, out of a sense of duty, right, to accept this invitation, uh, to feel that you are contributing positively to your own community locally, and in, in fact, in this situation, transnationally. Um, I feel that uh, this is the very most this is the most important part that we could do at a public institution is to uh, provide the right answers to to this uh, to this predicament that we're facing 
um, and, and also to think about how we can manage our uh, our expectations as we head headed deeper right into into COVID-19 but also how do we learn from this uh, particular predicament we're in now uh, and learn uh, and kind of uh, kind of extrapolate some sort of lessons for the future so uh, these are basically the reasons why I accepted this Thank you, Karam. I'm happy to, to jump in. Um, Dr. Taylor, um, the email that you sent to us, there was one phrase in that email that stood out to me. And that phrase was that you said, we must think about 2020 as a year when we contribute to the betterment of our society and our world. And that was really profound, really, for me to think about how can I, as an educator, as well as a researcher, help to contextualize uh, what it is that we're experiencing in this year. How can we help and how can I help not only our current students understand what this year means and how we can move forward from it, but how can we help our future students understand where we were and how we effectively move forward to really bring about the betterment of this world. And I have to say that I agree with, uh, with Hillary, it is almost impossible to say no to um, Dr. Taylor. So um, I was very grateful to have given this invitation. Now, Sharon, to be clear, I'm calling you Sharon, so you have to call me Ed. Echoing a lot of that, um, it's very, very hard to say no to, to Ed. And so um, that, was, that was the first motivation. Um, but for me, uh, my research uh, team, my colleagues and I have been studying online misinformation, disinformation for several, during crisis events, especially for several years. And, um, and certainly have been really active in the last few months around COVID-19 and around ele the election 2020 as well, kind of trying to understand misinformation, disinformation. And um, one of our goals with the new Center for an Informed Public is to help other people understand why we're so vulnerable right now and maybe to be able to um, take actions to be more resilient uh, or resistant to misinformation. And so I wanted to be able to share some of what we're learning with the students and the other audiences. And so I was really happy to have that opportunity to share what, what we've been learning. And the last part for me was really that time capsule element that's part of this whole project and, and thinking about um, how will this be remembered? How are, are we going to, to look back on this in a way um, and how can we, you know, inform what what we do as a society to come back together. There's a lot of things that are, that are broken right now, and so yeah. thinking about how society is going to look back at this time um, and 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 use it maybe to to make different decisions and be more resilient to things in the future. So it's really interesting that time capsule aspect as well. Kate, I want to pick up on that idea of misinformation and disinformation because that mattered so much to you with regard to the election, which is what you talked about. But that was significant for you, Hillary and Sharon, and for Karma as, as well. Is there anything you want to say about misinformation and disinformation in the work that, that you do? Because it was significant for Kate. Well, one of the things, I, I mean, I can lead off if, if you want. One of the things we saw with the election dis misinformation, it was often the same networks that were involved in spreading COVID-related misinformation became active in political mis and disinformation and then became active in the in the um, false and uh, misleading campaign uh, claiming voter fraud. So you could actually see the same net networks um, spreading this stuff. So it's a problem that, that's persistent across um, our information spaces. Hillary and Sharon, it seemed that there was lots of misinformation and disinformation about the impact of the virus and what we should do and how we should handle ourselves. What were your concerns with regard to misinformation, disinformation with regard to the to public health moment? 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was a huge problem for us. And I would say continues to be a huge problem as we as we now move into the phase of um, vaccinating the public mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of picking mm-hmm. up on on um, what Kate was saying, um, I think it it almost came, and it sounds kind of crazy, but it almost came as a surprise to us in public health. I mean, we knew that there were, you know, from the past, anti-vax movements and things like that, but the extent to which um, uh, the the challenges that we faced in terms of um, helping the public to respond in a way that would keep themselves healthy during this pandemic, the, the extent to which that was challenged by misinformation um, was was startling within the field of public health and certainly brought home to me the importance of us working more going forward within the field of public health with people like Kate um, who are looking at misinformation and sort of taking, you know, we realize we, we internally don't have that expertise um, and that we need to be partnering with those folks who do. And I'll share it with you. Know, I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to jump in. Thank you, Hillary. Um, you know, my concern around this misinformation was the whole issue around mask wearing, which should not have been an issue, quite frankly. And so this contributed to this virus spreading even more um, extensively than it needed to be spread. Um, if people had the this, uh, standard information about what you need to do to contain the virus, that is wearing your mask, socially distancing, then I think that we would have really had this under control, quite frankly, much earlier. And Kate can certainly speak about this. And so you had communities who were not sure, and so they continued to congregate, certainly within their families. You didn't even have to be outdoors and congregating in large groups, just within your families. Um, that contributed to that extensive spread as well. And so that was my concern that, you know, as a country, we certainly fared much worse than many other countries in the world. And I think it was this misinformation and this disinformation that contributed to all of that. Kate, your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I, you're right on early in the in the. Um, so first off, I, we weren't surprised as as misinformation researchers uh, to see this. And we've been looking at other crisis events and it just followed it was bigger because this event was bigger, but it, it, it wasn't qualitatively different than what we'd seen before. Um, early on in the first few months, it was just people trying to figure things out. And it, and it actually, I was surprised that it actually wasn't so problematic, I guess, in early March. But we saw it become politicized and then begin to, like, become part of the sort of conspiracy theory conversations and actually as a vector for bringing more people into these conspiracy theory communities that we knew were there, but then they began to grow. Um, and then And then became, you know, part of, of the decision-making process of large numbers of people um, that were being really affected by the information they were getting and that was, you know, being filtered with this very political lens and and shifted from, like, rumors and misinformation to very much intentional disinformation um, mm-hmm. by, you know, April and May. Yeah, so I'd like mm-hmm. to add a couple of, of, of you know, uh, points here, if I may, and kind of adding on what Kate um, and her colleagues are doing, and also the other panelists here, I think it's very important to also take into consideration how information has been spread all around the world, and not only in the United States, right? I think in some ways that we oftentimes uh, think of inf- information and disinformation and misinformation as separate categories that in some ways kind of exist only in English, right? 
But, uh, uh, you know, the same types of challenges have existed, obviously, as, as you very well know, elsewhere. Uh, but more importantly is that the U.S., in some ways, here in the United States, we have not been able to learn from the experiences of, say, people in Italy, unfortunately. Uh, this is a public health crisis. With, I mean, yeah. we've never had anything, at least in our lived experiences as, you know, people who are walking this earth. We have not had something similar to this. Yet we have failed in some ways to kind of understand that misinformation can, in fact, have serious negative ramifications and consequences, and, consequences and people dying yeah. right and left. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. we didn't learn uh, from the experiences of other places who have dealt with this. So I think uh, thinking about information, uh, you know, uh, misinformation, disinformation as separate kind of, uh, you know, different concepts. But in addition to this, that there's a much larger piece to information that we tend to oftentimes ignore that is outside the United States. The world doesn't only speak English. The world speaks so many different languages and so many different uh, in, in so many different cultural and political contexts as well that we need to take into consideration. Um, Connor, one of the things that I appreciate about your work is that this idea of misinformation and disinformation is such a part of Kate's research, Hillary and Sharon's work as well, is the social consequences of misinformation and disinformation mm -hmm. around who we are as people. Um, religious differences, political differences, those things that emerged during the course of, of 2020 that didn't emerge and aren't new to 2020, but have been the heart of your work as well. I want to move to an, another question. Thank, thank you all um, for engaging each other. I want you to think back when we began 2020, and, and this is a question I, I want to ask of you panelists, but I, but I hope for those that are, that are listening, um, alumni, um, parents, community members, students, to think back when 2020 began and is there anything that you had planned, but that did not happen this year, that you had planned for, but did not happen? And in other words, what did you have to give up because of the events and realities that you've confronted in 2020? And, and another part of that question, was there anything that you, that you might have taken for granted, but will no longer take for granted now? And I'd like you to consider the question, but I think for our audience, I'd love for them to consider that question because a lot of us gave some things up. Sharon, maybe you can begin. I'm happy to, to uh, tackle that question. Um, it's funny. I think the it seems so mundane to think about what I gave up, quite frankly. Um, you know, I gave up the usual conferences, right, that we are scheduled to present um, at. And so that was disappointing, of course. But my gosh, it made me think about what it was that I actually gained from um, what had transpired in 2020. I gained time with my family. I gained time with my children. Time that I would never have imagined that I would have had because everyone, we were all quarantined. We had to be together in this space. I have a 16 year old who's going on 21 and on our way to university very soon. Um, and I have a 14 year old in middle school and everybody goes off and does their own thing, right? And on a normal year, but this was not a normal year. And so we were really forced to take stock of what really matters, the time that we spend with our loved one. and. I, 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 I value that and I really appreciate having that. Um, I also recognize that, you know, um, I tend to perhaps um, take for granted the fact that um, I will always have time to do these things with my children. I, my research is first. I must focus. I'm in my lane. I'm staying focused on what it is that I have to do. And it made me recognize that these things are not that important. The work will be there. Your relationships with your family and your closest friends, that's so key. And we have to treasure those. 
And so this year brought me back into focus on to the things that really do matter. And that is the relationship that I do have with my children and my family. And I was very grateful for that. Thank you. Others? Well, um, I'll, I'll jump right in, if I may. I, um, I was born and raised in uh, the Palestinian territory of the West Bank um, in a town called Al-Khalil, Hebron. Uh, this is where my mother lives and where my most of uh, siblings live. And um, I tend to go with my family to Palestine over the summer. And it's a very long and kind of exhausting trip to get there. It takes about a day and a half to really just be able to see someone after leaving from SeaTac. So um, I definitely miss that. I, uh, I miss being with my family. I get a lot of energy from my mother um, and I get a lot of um, energy from my siblings and my nephews and nieces and the extended family. So I definitely miss that. And in some ways echoing Sharon's uh, point that the human connections with the people that you love are the most important. Um, I think that is something that I have also kind of rediscovered in some way. I've been able to spend time with my children more so than I usually do. Uh, with my spouse um, uh, and, and, and kind of thinking, kind of slowing down a little bit. But yeah. uh, in, in some ways, it allowed me to, to see uh, this, the importance in life a little bit clearer, just a little bit clearer, yeah. I think, uh, but not without, without understanding the challenge of the day. I'm going to insert another question that actually comes from, from our audience, because I think this might be relevant to you, Kate and, and Hillary. And the question is, you've talked about UW's research and how we've had a positive impact on the community. What has the UW learned from the community? So, so mm -hmm. has the learning gone the, the other direction? Um, Hillary, yeah. I remember being on phone calls with you with Seattle Public Schools with our colleagues trying to figure out how to get fifth graders and kindergartners back into to school, day-to-day um, -day kinds of things, um, and, and Kate, voters trying to figure out how do I make sense of, of who I vote to. What have we learned from the community that's informed us as a, as a university? Yeah, that I, you know, there's have been so many profound learning moments of this year. I think it, you know, part of this, like the, the time warp of 2020 of things speeding up and slowing down. Um, but a lot of those moments of, um, of deep learning. And one of them for me um, came from two colleagues who are very involved in um, providing health services um, to the community. Um, ben Danielson and Adrian Dominguez, who who did a webinar for us. And there was just this moment when the two of them were talking about um, that as we shift into thinking about how to get good vaccine coverage, that we recognize and honor the mistakes of our past in terms of um, what we within the field of public health, within the fields of medicine have done to earn the distrust of uh, native and black communities in particular. Um, and they, they really urged this shift in thinking from uh, how can we get those people to get vaccinated um, and, and pulling back and saying, what have we done to earn their distrust and what could we possibly do um, to try and earn back that trust and recognize that um, the, the vaccine trials are going to require um, other people to step up and take the first vaccines if, 
if that's what's necessary, if we're not sure about them. Um, that was a, it was a really important um, learning experience for me in terms of just reframing um, the debt that we owe to our communities and, and the way that we should be thinking about um, messaging out to them. Yeah, um, to, to answer that from my perspective, I guess I've been thinking about this a lot because we think of research as maybe you're sitting in a room and you're looking at your data, you're running analyses or something else. But when you really have insights and in research, it's through dialogue, right? It's through dialogue with someone else who's looking at the data with you or through another another researcher. And for us, it's often through dialogue with the public. And we, you know, normally I give a lot of talks. People come up after the talks. We ask questions. We have conversations. That's where I hear the stories about people who have a family member that went down the rabbit hole or someone who has a question that's actually a really hard question, really challenges something, some way that I've been talking about something or thinking about something. And in some ways, we've lost a little bit of the ability to do that this year. I don't, I've lost that chance to connect with people afterwards, which is one of the, after the talks I give, which is something I really enjoy. But these remote talks have opened up um, the, the, the capacity to have a lot of different conversations with a lot of different people with question and answering type things. And I've done a lot of these panels and, and, and that has actually um, been a place where, you know, those questions, those questions that are hard are the best ones, the ones that really they put you back on your heels and you're not quite sure how to answer it. And you think about it the, that night when you're trying to go to sleep and then and you work through it. And that's and to really understand, you know, similarly on the missing disinformation stuff is like, why are people skeptical skeptical about certain kinds of information and then falling for, for misinformation? Why is why is why are they vulnerable? And then having these conversations and they kind of explain why they've lost trust for the government and why they've explained why they've lost trust for, you know, different parts of the processes that we're talking about, whether medical or the election processes. And, and it's those conversations. So in some ways, we have lost a little bit of that this year, but in some ways, I've gained like a, the ability to connect to much broader audiences through the, the digital format. Yeah. There, there is a question that's come about about wanting to to be optimistic as we enter 2020. And so I want to come to that question about what gives us a hope and why we should be optimistic and what we should be hopeful about in 21. Um, but first, um, I want I want to come back to um, what are the most pressing issues and problems that surface for you in 2020 that will need our time and attention in 2021. So what have we learned and what's been revealed that will need our time and attention as we move forward? And perhaps we can bring in this this perspective of why should we be hopeful as we enter 2021? I'll jump right in. I think, why should we be hopeful? I think um, that's a really interesting question. However, I'd like to mention, as we all know, nothing magical is going to happen at the stroke of midnight of 2020, you know, New Year's <laughs> Eve. In some ways, um, the important part here is to recognize that there are a culmination of different processes, different challenges, uh, income inequality of all different shapes and forms, um, different socioeconomic differences, if I may, right? Equity questions that have culminated uh, during the pandemic. I think disasters tend to exacerbate these types of issues. Um, that 2020 in some ways becomes the culmination of all of that. And we become somewhat overwhelmed with what we are observing and what we are trying to analyze and the conclusions that we're going to kind of come up with. 
Um, and in some ways, I feel that 2021, if anything, is going to teach us that, well, I hope so, that it will teach us that, that disasters are happening all around us. And there are other kinds of problems and predicaments that have happened before 2020 and unfortunately continued through 2020 and most likely will continue after 2020. So to think about that in the sense that this time period of 2020, the difficulties that we lived in the United States and around the world, but to think about them in some ways as, as experiences that are going to teach us something moving forward. I think, how do we learn from this disaster, if I may, or predicament or challenge? Um, and of course, these challenges are different uh, uh, from one person to another, from one community to another. I mean, uh, uh, people of color, communities of color in the United States have experienced the pandemic in a very different way than everybody else, right? So we have to consider that one. And then two, income inequality has really exacerbated. And, and in some ways, the, the gap between the rich and the poor has become a lot wider. So to think about 2020 in an optimistic way, in some ways becomes a, a naive type of, uh, of a situation if we are not taking the lessons of 2020 into consideration. I have faith in people. I am optimistic. I believe in some ways that people are going to learn that it matters that you lend uh, a hand to those who need help. It matters to, to think about um, correcting misinformation in some way uh, when we're even walking down the street. Um, and in some ways, uh, to kind of think uh, collectively, what can you as an individual do? What can you do as an individual to alleviate the stress of people around you? Not only in your immediate family and people that you care for, but people who are actually very different than you are and have different political ideologies than you do, and people who are experiencing this pandemic differently. So. Um, that is what I'm hoping for 2021. Uh, maybe it's a little bit too much to expect, but I but I do have faith in humanity in some ways. I, and I think uh, if anything, this pandemic has taught us how to become, I hope it's teaching us how to become better humans, to actually understand our own suffering through other people's suffering and understand their suffering through our own suffering, individual. May it, be, it may be very different. Our suffering might be very different, but to understand other people's suffering in ways that uh, matter to you in some ways and, and, and are able for you to understand it in your own terms. Um, so, yeah. I'd like to follow up on what Karam has said. And I think some of the strengths for me in 2020 is the fact that, well, one strength is that we're having conversations in a way that we never had before. We're talking about things that were very difficult to speak about, but now we're forced to be comfortable speaking about these things because they are magnified and they're right there in front of us. We have no choice. We must look at them, we must interrogate them, and we must come to some conclusion. You know, in my talk, I spoke about the idea of racism. This is not an idea. This is something that has been around forever and a day. But before, to mention the word racism, you know, it's almost like saying an R word. You couldn't say it out loud. It promotes and invokes defensiveness. It invokes emotionality. It invokes anger. But the thing is that this is a reality. And so people were forced to confront this reality of racism to confront this reality of health inequities, to confront the reality of injustice. And so everyone is realizing, we're all realizing that, yes, let's talk to each other, not at each other. Let's hear what the other persons have to say. Let's listen to learn. Let's listen to understand. Let's listen to hear the other person. And so I think this is one of the 
perhaps strengths, if we can find some kernel of strengths in 2020, is that now we're having the conversations that we should have had many, many years ago. And I'm hoping that with these conversations, we can come up with some truths. From these truths, we can come up with a sense of direction. And with that direction, we can really make a difference to change the trend in which we were going in the society. Let's address health inequity. Let's address social and health inequity. Let's address injustices. And so this has been the benefit of this year. Thank you, Connor and Sharon. Kate, Hillary, anything to add? That was so beautiful. I don't think I have more to add than that. We know that 2020 held many challenges. Um, and you may have already spoken to this, but, but I think these concepts of grace and hope and possibility um, are, are important now. Are there moments of grace and, and hope and possibility that you experienced in the midst of all that was so dark during the course of this year that you can share? I'm probably Go ahead, guys. Hillary, you go ahead, Kate. Okay. Uh, for me, the biggest one was um, I started teaching a class for my Dean's Advisory Council of Students. Um, and actually being online made it easier. It was hard to find a time otherwise that students from all these different programs that meet at different times, um, some of which are remote, some of which are local, um, could meet. And so it facilitated that. Um, I just loved having at the end of each Monday an opportunity to have frank conversations with students, really diverse students, really engaged students, um, for them to be willing to be open about what they were struggling with, um, to, for me to have an opportunity to be human with them. Um, it, it really, for me, that was a, every week a joy to spend time with them. Similar answer for me. It's actually a really hard question for a disinformation researcher to come up with hopefulness. <laughs> um, uh, it's a it's a hard time right now, and um, and and just the nature of that of studying that particular kind of thing. But one of the things we did this year in August, we had um, colleagues at Stanford reached out to us about doing this partnership to try to track and address uh, disinformation about the election in real time, and. We put it together a team at, at, at UW, they had a team at Stanford, we had two other partners in the private sector and government. And we ended up with a team of about 120 different people. We never met in person. We were working shifts of four hours at a time, kind of twice a week, which is so weird for academic uh, rhythms and things. And, and, and before we knew it, we had like, you know, I was, I used to be an athlete and I've never actually pulled over my, my athlete past, but I was giving like motivational speeches of here we go, we're going in, tomorrow's the day, we're going to do this or that. And, and we had this like, this, and the, the, the students, everyone, they were so brilliant and they were so motivated and they were working so hard from undergraduates, PhD students, master's students, we had postdocs and other colleagues just putting their hearts out there and, and working so hard on things. And that for me was really inspiring just to remember that there are so many people that care about these problems and they're willing to like put other things down. <laughs> work late into the night, you know, and, and really sacrifice to make a difference in the world. And, um, and it was, that was really probably the most uplifting um, aspect of the year for me was just to be able to, to work with all of our fantastic students and collaborators. We have a few minutes left. We have five minutes left. And so I'm going to, I'm going to pose a final question to you. Um, 
Kate, you, you um, invoked something in me. You said you used to be an athlete. One of the reasons I invited all of, all of you and our other faculty who said yes to this to, um, to join and provide a humble lecture from, from wherever they are in their, in their homes um, is because you're, you're good teachers, you're good researchers, you're good scholars, but you're such interesting people. And, and I hope that our community has the opportunity to get to know you as former athletes, as, citizens, as parents that are sending kids off to college or that have young kids or that get sick from time to time that live and engage in our community. That was one of the gifts that you gave to us was your, your sense of humanity. So, so thank you for that. Um, final question, and if we can take a few minutes on this, um, as we think about because your work is is global. All of you are doing really global work. It's not local. It has implications for our community, but it has implications for the world. And all of you are really studying at, at the global level. And as we think about our nation, state, and community in our world, give some concrete advice to those that are listening about how we begin the work of, been using these terms of truth, reconciliation, and, and repair. And because we're in the business of truth telling, which came up here. Um, Reconciliation, coming to terms with, with the moment that we're in, and the work of repair, and we've got lots of repair to do. What advice do you have for yourself and for others and those that are listening about how we can do that work together as we enter 2021? Should I jump in? Please. Um, <laughs> so um, I think, you know, to kind of, it's really interesting because in some ways, 2020 provided a moment of reflection unlike any other year in recent memory, right? In some ways, this reflection allows us to recognize our own individual privileges in some ways, right? I mean, I happen to be a Palestinian-American academic. I teach Middle East politics. Most of the stuff I do is pretty depressing. I write on Palestine and the impact of Israeli occupation on Palestinian society. I study American Muslims and race ethnicity and politics in the context of the U.S. This is difficult. But what this allowed me in some ways is to think uh, kind of through the different um, layers of challenges that my students are facing, but also myself thinking about all my own identity. What is affecting the way I think? What is affecting the way I interact with the people around me, my students, my family, uh, my neighbors, etc. And if there's an advice, a piece of advice that I would like to give is to think in some ways about your own privilege, because you know, for the time capsule, what I what I shared was two passports, my Palestinian passport and my American passport. One is obviously a lot more powerful than another than the other during normal circumstances. However, um, I saw that there is no difference during the pandemic between the Palestinian passport that tends to stop you for a long, long time at borders and the American passport that actually was very powerless during the pandemic. What that effectively told me is that things can happen very quickly. And, you know, um, unfortunately, there are people who are unable to do uh, what I am able to do. So for me to recognize my own privilege, and if there's a piece of advice I'd like to give to my students, uh, their parents, uh, the alumni, and the community in, in general, is to think about your own privilege and to start feeling uh, and, and kind of understanding how can you actually, what can you do and how can you change the community around you to make it a better place for everyone? So, yeah. Thank you, Connie. We have a minute left and we have three of you. So Hillary, uh, Sharon, Kate, <laughs> how do we make it better? I'll, I'll, I'll jump in real quick and just follow up on what Karam has to say. If we're going to reach across and build those bridges, we have to interrogate our own biases. We have to interrogate our own presumptions. We have to interrogate our own personal narratives. 
And we have to recognize that we come to any situations with our own personal worldview. And these worldview can interfere with our ability to connect. And so I think that in making that connection, not only should we interrogate, but we should also engage with a certain sense of humility, uh, a, a willingness to look at ourselves and, and recognize that we don't have all the answers, certainly in higher ed, but we're willing to learn and we're willing to be humble and recognize that um, we want to learn and we want to connect. Hillary Kate, last word goes to the two of you. For, uh, that was a fantastic answer. I, I mean, I would just add, I guess, like it, it, you don't have to save all, the world all at once. It can, it can be small, it can be local, it can be your own relationships to build re, uh, build bridges, reach out, and 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 you know the other person doesn't have to come all the way over to your side. You know, you can re reach out even though we know that there are hard things that we might not disagree. I think we need to really think about keeping channels of communication open because we've got some big divisions and we're going to have to find a way um, to build some bridges between ourselves. Can I thank you for, for, for being brilliant and for being courageous and for being humble and for being such good public educators. I'm, I'm proud to call you all colleagues. So, so thank you all. Thank you. I, I want to introduce an, another colleague into the conversation, Joe James, who's a professor in the Information School at the University of Washington on the Seattle campus. And so much of this idea came in part because of conversations that Joe and I had the opportunity to have. And, and I remember back in, in March, walking across campus alongside of Joe, and we were looking at a campus that was emptying out. We were asking students to leave, to move to a virtual campus. And Joe looked up at some point and said, if there's one thing that I hope that our students in our community will do is to write something, is to hold something, to hold the memory because the memory of this day and the memory of this time is going to be significant. Historians and information scientists will look back and wonder how we were and how we felt and what we did and, and what we kept. And so this idea of a time capsule comes in part from a conversation with Joe Janes and colleagues. So I'd like Joe to, to talk a bit about this idea of a time capsule. Joe, thank you for joining us. Uh, well, thank you, Ed. And um, thanks to my colleagues on the panel, um, this is what universities do. I also want to just say a word of thanks to everybody who's made this course and this experience happen and this evening happen. Um, those of us who have spent our lives in higher education know that nimble is not the first word that leaps to mind when you think of higher education. Um, and, and all the people, our students, our faculty, our staff, uh, members of the community who've who've made this all work, um, often at a moment's notice or less so, we, we really appreciate your efforts. I will say I also, I think we also appreciate the opportunity to make something of this year. Um, there are almost no memorials to the pandemic of a century ago. Um, there are no empty chairs like there are in Oklahoma City. There are no engraved steel columns like there are in the Peace and Justice Memorial at, in Montgomery. There's no list of names like the Vietnam Memorial. There's no ruined dome like in Hiroshima. There's no museum like Yad Vashem or at 9-11. Maybe the closest thing we have is the AIDS Memorial quilt, which has something less than 50,000 panels in it now. And you wonder what could possibly be equal to the task? What, where would a memorial go? What would it look like? to remember the hundreds of thousands of people who we've lost the, in every corner of the world, the millions of people who have fallen ill, 
lost a job, are broken and grieving. How, how do we remember? It's hard to imagine this, but it's probably true. Someday, this will all be forgotten or hazily remembered at best. But we all can do something about this in a small way to help to tell the stories of our communities and ourselves and what this year has been like. There's no one story, as you've just heard, as we all know. There's no one story. There can't be. These things are all intertwined and interconnected. And it's only from the sum of lots and lots and lots of these stories that an authentic picture can emerge of, of this year and this time. So what we've been doing in this course, broadly now in this session, is to make meaning, to make sense of all of this, and in a literal sense, to make history for ourselves now and for those who are going to come after. Um, you've heard referenced um, several times the time capsule. We asked students to submit images of an object or an event or something that was um, particularly meaningful to them, particularly resonant, that sort of represented uh, this year and, and some of the issues that we were engaged in the course uh, that represented that. Think of time capsules. You often think of them in a sort of ceremonial kind of way. You know, when a building is dedicated or at a centennial, at a world's fair. Um, uh, Students that so there is a time capsule, and students have have submitted these images for hours. But those tonight, you can join in. Um, you can do this yourself. There are all kinds of guidelines. You can you can Google you know how to make a time capsule, and you'll get guidance from the National Archives and the Library of Congress. You can buy little torpedo shaped metal time capsules if you want to. Um, I won't go into too much detail. I'll give you a few guidelines if you're thinking about doing this. First of all, don't bury it. <laughs> this is how they get lost if you bury them. Um, a, because nobody finds them, uh, and B, because, you know, stuff gets at them like dirt and water and animals and such. So don't bury it. Put it somewhere safe, wherever that is, in, in whatever space you have. Um, there are certain kinds of materials that are a bad idea. They give off fumes. They give off chemicals. Um, that might degrade other things. I would strongly encourage you, as, as Ed just referenced, don't include digital things. Um, imagine if we were doing this 20 years ago, we'd have a bunch of floppy disks um, and we'd all just stare at them now with no way to read them. So digital materials, first of all, we don't know about their longevity and durability. And second of all, there may not be a device to play them on. So pick real things. Um, and then whatever you pick, whatever collection, selection of stuff you pick, document what, you, what you've chosen and why. Describe these things, give the context, tell the story. Why did you put it in there? What does it mean to you? How, does this, how, does, how do these things tell the story, your story of this year? And then put it somewhere that it can and will be found <laughs> um, so that it can and will be found. Now, one question you might want to ask is, how long do you want to put it away for? Some, many time capsules have these unimaginably long lifespans. Uh, often they're done of 100 years, 200 years. The, the time capsule at the 1939 World's Fair is meant to be opened in 5,000 years. There's a thing called the Crypt of Civilization. I am not making that up. That's meant to be opened in 8113, which I'm going to bet against, just for the record. Um, 
We've chosen 20 years um, for this project. Uh, partially, that's just a play on 2020, you know, 20 years. But also, if you think about it, many of the students who are in this class who are entering students this year are about 20. So if we open this in 20 years, this will be the sort of midpoint of their lives at that stage. Also, there's a realistic chance that many of them uh, will be able to return um, in that period of time. So whatever makes sense for you, you know, right on the box, this is the year 2020 to be opened in. And if you like the idea of putting this year in a box, here's your chance. Um, why are we doing this? Uh, you've already heard this referenced. People in the future are going to want to know what this was like. We want to know what life is like, was life was like in 1918, 19, and we have very little evidence of that. People are going to want to know. The future is going to want to know. And what we put aside and what we keep and why, all of this will be us to them. So choose with purpose, choose with care, um, and, and choose with hope. Uh, in most of the world at this hour, it is already New Year's Eve. It is the last day of the hardest year that many of us will ever know. Um, some of you may have seen the introductory lecture I gave for the course, and I brought out a bunch of family stuff and talked about it. So I could not resist the temptation to bring out a couple more things. So this is my calendar that I've been using all year for 2020. I bought this at the university bookstore last, late last December. I think it was on sale. Um, and I'm so done with this, I cannot tell you. Um, so I just bought a new calendar in a nice bright color for a nice bright shiny year. Karam tells us nothing's gonna happen at the stroke of midnight, that's a damn shame. But um, I bought this, you know, and it's notice it's much thinner because I expect to have much less to write in this. And buying these and thinking about these put me in mind of, I knew somewhere I had a diary um, from my family and I found it. So this was my father's. Uh, and it's a five-year diary. They used to make these things. I don't know if they still do anymore or not, where you could, you know, it's every page is a day and you're supposed to record for five years what happened on that day. So this is mostly blank. Uh, he began this diary in September of 1945. My father served in World War II in a small island off the coast of New Guinea in the South Pacific. And he got this diary apparently as a birthday present. The war ended in August of 1945. He apparently got this in a birth in, in, uh, for, as a birthday present in August. And he began to keep it in September. And most of it is accounts of him packing and then repacking and packing again in preparation to go home and waiting for the ship that doesn't come and waiting for the train that takes forever to come. And this kind of tortuous journey um, that he took to get from this small remote island off the coast of New Guinea to his small rural farming community in upstate New York. On this night, December 30th, 1945, 75 years ago tonight, was the first day he spent at home. He finally made it home at three in the morning on December 30th, 75 years ago tonight, almost to the hour. And much of what he writes in here is his longing to go home and his longing for a sense of normality. And I can appreciate that a whole lot more fully than I ever could before. When we think of time capsules, we think of them as repositories of memory and that we put them aside for some sort of ceremonial opening, some sort of ceremonial 
reopening. And it's selective and selected, as somebody once referred to it, time capsules are a posed portrait as opposed to a candid photograph. Universities are different. Universities are also repositories of memory, lots and lots and lots of memories, but by no means everything, by no means everyone. There are lots of questions unanswered and unasked. There are lots of people unheard and unrecorded. And unlike a time capsule, a university is opened every day. We share what's in there, we question what's in there, we consult what's in there, we add to it so that we can know more every day and we can do better every day as a common public good. If you want evidence of the power and the soul of this university, our university, I invite you now to hear from some of the members of our community who participated in the course and about things that mattered to them and what they want the future to know about their 2020. And for now, I wish you all peace and joy and health and much, much better memories in the days and years to come. There's something really exciting about encapsulating a moment from our present and imagining what it will tell us when we look back on this extraordinary time. Thank you, Dean Ed Taylor and Professor Joe James and the many faculty who helped make this course such a special experience. I'm grateful to our incredible students who participated in the course and created this time capsule for our community. So for the 2020 time capsule, I decided to contribute my high school graduation cap. I graduated high school at the peak of COVID-19 and I think Be The Change just signifies us coming together as a community to address the issues in our society and become better people for the future. I decided to submit a picture of my daughter for the time capsule assignment um, just because it'd be so easy to focus on the negativities of how COVID's affected all of us that I felt it was important to also highlight some of the benefits and one that my family received was getting to spend more time at home with my daughter as she was growing up. I submitted to our time capsule was of this sign which says demilitarize the police. It's the sign that I carried at the first protest I ever attended which was back in June in Tacoma in the aftermath of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's deaths. A lot has changed in the past six months. I was too scared back then to say what I really meant which was defund and abolish the police. Uh, 2020 has been for me and for lots of other people, I'm sure, a year that totally changed the way I view activism, the way I understand institutional racism, and the responsibility that I feel to work towards dismantling a corrupt and ineffectual justice system that penalizes black and brown people, disabled people, and poor people for the crime of existing.
before I talk about my item, I want to talk about what 2020 has been like for me. I feel like 2020 has bombarded me with these piles of statistics and these statistics have made me brush off the life stories that come along with each individual number. So here's my item. It is my name tag for where I work, which is at a retirement home. In the corner here, you can see my latest temperature check. And as these have accumulated, I've also accumulated sticker stains. And I think that these sticker stains are representative of the life stories and memories and history that come along. And so I found that there's incredible beauty of the life history, memories, and stories, and I don't ever want those to be forgotten. And so I think this name tag is representative of our shared feeling of hope because when we think of these statistics as stories, the stories become understanding, the understanding ultimately becomes love. really excited to be able to contribute something to the time capsule for 2020. And I'll confess it was really hard to decide. I picked this up on a hike yesterday and, um, and it really symbolizes something that this year has, um, uh, that has really sustained me through this year, which is getting time away from screens, time away from the usual routine and um, really appreciating my immediate surroundings and what we have here in the state of Washington and in the Seattle region. So here's to the end of 2020, here's to 2021, and here's to not forgetting this year and remembering its import in many ways because I have a feeling that future generations are going to be talking about this for a long time to come. colleague Joe Janes and my colleagues and our students for, for your contribution and and I hope as many of us as, as, as can possibly be there will be there with you 20 years from now when we talk about your contribution to your time cups. We want to be standing there beside you. As, as part of the course I asked colleagues to, to contribute a little something to contribute what they had. I asked Mark Seals um, who's a brilliant jazz pianist and teaches music at our university. And, and Mark um, has created a, a song for, for us, a, a jazz performance that he's created with his, his students. And he'll reveal that for us at some point. Um, I asked my, my colleague, Sean Wong, who's a professor in, in the English department. And Sean is a, is a brilliant writer and a, and a brilliant teacher. And I asked him to consider writing a poem. And Sean said, yes and then came up with something else. And I'm gonna read from the email that Sean sent to me, because he decided to do what he's calling a graphic narrative. And he says, here's the graphic narrative that I promised you at for the closing statement for your 2020 course. As I mentioned earlier, I thought a graphic narrative and story would be better than a recorded poem, since students are probably overloaded with recording with recorded content these days with everything online and on Zoom. The attached story is titled Questions Don't Die, which is a title taken from Pablo Neruda's Book of Questions. I tried to think of a story that your students 
could relate to in a message that all we could all use right now at this stage of the pandemic and at this stage of remote learning. I could not have accomplished this graphic narrative and story without the collaboration and illustrations of Kaya Chesson, former UW honors student, UW class of 06, who has collaborated with me on other projects in the past. She was also a student in my first Honors Rome class when I was the director of the Honors Program. I can't draw anything, Sean says, so this wouldn't have happened without Kaya. Kaya is a medical illustrator by profession, so I'm eternally grateful that she was able to squeeze this project into her current workload. And there we see an image of Sean on the left and Kaya on the right. And Sean reached out to Kaya in part, and you can see in the, in the image down below, Kaya is the teacher and Sean is the student sitting in a classroom with a mask during the pandemic. And Sean has just simply asked the question, what have you learned? And now she is the, the teacher and he is the, the student. And so this is a reflection of, of Kaya's work and, and Sean's work and their illustration that will be available to us as well. I'm so grateful for their, for their contribution. Both beautiful scholars, beautiful writers and beautiful artists. Thank you, Sean. So um, our, our students, when we came into this, we, we knew that, that, um, that at some point that they would be alum, that come 20, 40, 20 years from now, beyond, that they will be alumni. And we as a community walk with our students from the time that they enter to at uh, the time that they leave and become and become professionals, become teachers, become lawyers, become um, UPS drivers, become um, become community members, the kind of neighbors that you want in, in our community, no matter where they are in the world. And nobody walks more closely alongside of our of our students and our alum than than Paul Rucker. Paul is the vice president for alumni and stakeholder engagement. And Paul has a, a message for us because Paul will be the keeper of, and he and his colleagues will be the stewards of this time capsule. So here's a message from Paul Rucker. Thank you, Professor Taylor. It is such a pleasure to be with you today. To the students and faculty, to all involved in the 2020 course, what a great example of the transformational work of the University of Washington. Our students are joining a community of 500,000 graduates worldwide who are committed to strengthening this public university and its impact. To the alums and supporters on today's event, know that your opportunity and obligation to reconnect and engage with our university and students is omnipresent. The Alumni Association takes great pride in receiving this time capsule. I'm gonna show it to you in a moment, but over the next decade and 20 years from now, we will bring you back together to recognize and celebrate this important time that you spent together. So please join me in celebrating this extraordinary artifact that the UW Libraries and the Alumni Association will be stewards of for the years to come. Professor Taylor, 20 years ago, I had the honor of being a student in your class. Your commitment and that of all of our faculty members is just extraordinary. On behalf of the Alumni Association, thank you all. Ed, back to you. Thank you, Paul. Holding a locked boss box. Don't bury it and don't have food in it. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Uh, this, this concludes our, our time together, um, but it doesn't include, conclude our, our work together. Um, Sean Wong talked about his relationship with Kai and said that one of the things he does as a professor is, is begin a conversation with students that, that doesn't end. And I hope one of the things that we can do as a university is begin a conversation with you, one that, that will not end, that will, that will carry on. Um, 
I hope that we, taken from what we've learned today, that we, that we live lives of, of purpose and that we do it together. Um, I hope that we can, as we go forward, um, honor those people that won't go into 2021 with us. There have been so many losses, but perhaps we can live in such a way and research in such a way and teach and engage in such a way that it honors their, their memories that will carry them with us. Um, there's a, a scholar that I respect a lot, W.E.B. Du Bois, and he, um, there's a quote that, that sticks with me that, that many of my colleagues have heard me say. He said, in, at the turn of the century, he said, here is a chance for young men and women of devotion to lift up the banner of humanity and march toward a civilization that is free, that is intelligent, that is healthy and unafraid. So think about that quote again. Here is a chance for young men and women of devotion, that is all of us people of devotion, to march, think about the, civil, the symbolism of a march, to march toward a civilization that is for things free, which we all want to be intelligent and to be healthy and unafraid. And I wish that for all of you. Thank you for joining us and let's carry on a conversation from here. Take good care, everyone. This conversation presented by the University of Washington and the UW Alumni Association took place on December 30th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org, and click on the podcast tab. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.